Wealthmanagement.com presents Success Zone, a podcast dedicated to bringing financial advisors sweeping insights beyond the market headlines to help them become more savvy about the industry, transform their practice, enhance their marketing skills, and take their business to the next level. Listen in for a wealth of information that includes remarkable success stories and expert advice from the industry's key players and most successful and skilled financial professionals. Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Success Zone from wealthmanagement.com. Today, our guest is Thomas LaSalvia. Thomas is a PhD, is the senior economist at Moody's Analytics, specializing in commercial real estate. Thomas, how are you today? Doing quite wonderfully. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I think we're going to talk about a pretty fantastic topic that the industry is just waking up to, but we'll be talking about it for years to come. Okay. So what are we talking about? What, what, what is the bottom line today of what we're going to be discussing? Climate risk and how we're starting to really think about it, how we're starting to add it to our models, yeah. maybe what's some of the data showing. But yeah, it's, it's a topic, like I said, I think we're just on the precipice here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we've got a great question lineup for you today that, that really kind of shows the power of what you guys are doing over there. So I'm just going to dive in if that's okay with you. Absolutely. All right. Well, Thomas, adver adverse climate events such as floods and hurricanes and fires obviously impact commercial properties directly through physical damage to the properties themselves. But the negative consequences for commercial real estate owners can go well beyond these. Can you talk a little bit about some of the second and third order impacts of such events on commercial real estate assets? And what do these potential disruptions look like? And how much financial loss can they cause? Yeah, it's a great question because, as you said, it's it's obvious that physical damage can be devastating. Mm -hmm. Owners, tenants, uh, lenders, if we have to go through modifications or deal with any delinquencies, even you know spreading that out to the community, dealing with blight, it could have effects on properties nearby <clears throat> that weren't mm -hmm. even affected from the the event itself, right? Yeah, but. But I want to comment, I think, on, on what I maybe is the, the larger issue going forward. And I think when we get an event, a major hurricane, major wildfire, that it's, it's this awareness, this fear that's brought to the forefront of, of stakeholders' minds, right? And that has far-reaching implications. You know, when you think about the CRE market, it's, it's fairly complicated, right? There's a lot of moving parts. The, the mm -hmm. space market interacts with the capital market, which interacts with the development market, which then goes back into the space market and brings us hopefully to, uh, to a new equilibrium at some point. And it's this awareness, fear, risk that enters into each of those kind of sub-markets separately. So if you think about the demand side of things in the space market, right? I may not want to live in an area where I have to evacuate three or four times a year. Mm -hmm. Insurance premiums rise, uh, lender scrutiny, or uh, rates rise for financing projects, right? So that's going to potentially build in some illiquidity. Higher development costs if we have to go through uh, particular building procedures, uh, maybe more red tape, right? So all of those can enter into the market separately, but then, of course, they have to interact with each other. Yeah. And that's the real complexity of the situation. And I think that's where the, the researchers are, are just on that tip of the iceberg here, is trying to remedy some of that uncertainty. So, you know, obviously the physical damage, we think about different hurricanes, different wildfires, we have to rebuild, we have to 
put in resilience efforts. But ultimately, it's how it works its way through the entire market system that I think gives us more hesitation, more uncertainty, more, more concern as, as industry professionals and researchers within the industry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually really glad you brought up insurance in that, in that answer because that's, that leads me to my next question. I'm, I'm curious, how are property insurers responding to the increasing risk of adverse climate events in certain areas? I mean, we, we hear about it in different parts of the country so that it's on the top of people's minds. And, and how might the solutions they are considering affect the overall cost of real estate development over the coming years? Yeah, undoubtedly, this is at the, the forefront of insurers' minds. Mm-hmm. But I would say, unfortunately, there's some more questions than, than answers at this point. You know, we do see some issues, in particular with the wildfires out west. There's been a couple of smaller insurance um, insurers that have gone bankrupt. There's a couple of other insurers that started to pull out of particular areas like that. And I know that the California government is getting involved. And so there, there's certainly, you know, initially with wildfires in particular, there are some, some movement in the industry. So, but still overall, I go back to that more questions than answers because, you know, the theoretical link is obviously there, right? I mean, higher premiums for sure yeah. uh, is on the table, but I also want to, to kind of balance that out with saying that the, the industry is also attempting to be creative with how it approaches this problem, right? This is a bit of a collective action type of problem, and they're not taking this lightly. They're very highly engaged. And, you know, I don't think anything's off the table. So we already mentioned increasing premiums. You know, I've heard talk of parametric pricing, right? This is something that's been done in a lot of developing countries that deal with hurricanes all the time. And for those of you who don't know, it's kind of this trigger based. It's it's based on the magnitude of the particular event. And then there is a, a set payout. And what this does is it lowers transaction costs. It brings some more efficiency into, into the industry, which could really be a help if we're going to be dealing with more loss situations. And then on top of that, we definitely notice a lot of partnering going on. So this is, this is kind of strategic partnering with insurers, with property owners, with local governments to really boost resilience efforts. And that could be at the, the single asset level. So whether it's putting in you know, hurricane-proof glass into buildings or you know, other types of, of development procedures that could be done at the single asset, but then also at the community level, you see that insurers, especially where they have large exposure, maybe it's out west with wildfires, maybe it's in the southeast or in the Texas area dealing with hurricanes, where they're actually going in and they're working with those local governments, large-scale developers, and this kind of public-private partnership that I think ultimately... um, Will, will matter quite a bit going forward for the industry as a whole, not just the insurers, but also every, every other stakeholder involved. Hmm. Well, thanks for that. I mean, that's great information. And, and it's, again, I think you're spot on. Thomas, can you talk about the relationship between climate risk, uh, such as sea level rise, for instance, and gentrification? Are there communities around the U.S. that are already experiencing the impact of climate gentrification, as they say? And then what are some of the negative consequences of this trend and how can they be mitigated? Yeah, absolutely a great topic, an incredibly important topic, a topic that 
brings the the S and the G into the ESG when we're thinking <laughs> about it from that perspective. Yeah. And, and when I think of climate gentrification, I also like to use the phrase climate displacement. And I, and I mm. think there's an importance to bring that word displacement into it. You know, when you think of gentrification, you know, traditionally it's, it's high-income households moving into a lower middle-income neighborhood, driving up the prices, and those lower middle-income households have to move on, right? And when you add the word climate to it, it's high-income households moving to, say, higher ground due to fear or concern of floods or sea level rise, whatever it might be. And then that ultimately drives up prices and lower-income households have to move on. And you know, I want to start there. And we do have some subtle evidence of that in the United States. And there's a very well-cited paper, 2018 paper by some Harvard researchers. And they looked at this in and around Miami, and they actually did show that there was some price appreciation in magnitudes that was greater at the higher elevation areas in Miami, in and around Miami, than at the lower elevation areas, right? And so that's a, that's a well-cited paper. And I think that's used to express that there is some of this gentrification going on within, or at least some migration patterns changing within a place like Miami. And, and even when you dig into the news in that area, right? And you're looking for anecdotes and you see it in areas like, what's it, Liberty City, Little Havana, Little Haiti, all of these areas that traditionally are, are ethnic areas, traditionally ethnic neighborhoods in Miami, lower to middle income areas. And you, you see in the news that groups are starting to form that are trying to raise a voice against some of this gentrification, right? And I think some of the, the civil um, liberties groups are starting to get involved as well because they see some of the writing on the wall in these areas. So the concern is there. And I think this is going to play out really in the, in the short to midterm future quite a bit. We're going to hear about this climate gentrification in that way. But I, as I said before, I don't want us to forget this word displacement or this phrase climate displacement because we actually see a little stronger evidence after major events have occurred, right? So what's happening in and around Miami, they haven't had a major devastating storm or, or floods that have really prompted extreme movement or displacement because of the event. But if you look at, say, Hurricane Katrina or Harvey out in Houston, you know, initially that displaced hundreds of thousands of people, many of them being low income. Mm -hmm. And it, it certainly destroyed large swaths of, of public and affordable housing. And so those folks had to move, you know, from those cities altogether, at least temporarily. And then, you know, the city over, over quarters, over years, it's rebuilding. But as those folks tried to come back, they realized that they really had nothing to come back to, or at least not um, at the price point and at the quantity of options that they really needed. The way I kind of think about this is part of it's a cost issue, right? So if you think of there's a major event, there's fear that that event can happen again, for sure. And when we're going to rebuild in those areas, we often are going to rebuild with resilience in mind, and that is more costly, mm -hmm. right? So there's, there's certainly an issue there. And then at the same time, public leaders are actually, I think, doing a good thing 
in trying to not make the mistakes of 1950s and 60s public housing. We all know that you know building large, large areas of public housing in one particular spot didn't work out well in the 50s and 60s showed us. And a lot of those particular properties have been raised. And and you know, even these hurricanes and storms have eliminated some of those those mm-hmm. properties. The thing is, what they're doing, once again, I think it's the right approach, is they're trying to build public housing, affordable housing mixed in with middle and upper income housing, which which actually economists have showed typically is a good thing for the achievement, the 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 long-term economic outcomes of, of children and people that live in these mixed income areas, especially mm-hmm. if they're coming from lower income. The problem is, is that it's really hard to do this at the necessary scale for the amount of people that need it, right? So we have this kind of cost issue. We have this philosophy on how public housing should be done, and that's changing. And both of those don't really go at the scale that's necessary. And so I think, you know, this is a big society issue, and it shows even in the tightness of affordable housing market right now that's running at vacancies in two, three percent, right at the national level. This is going to be tough for us to handle as an industry, but I think it's something that we really have to strive to do a good job at. And ultimately, you know, we're going to have to put money into this. It, this is not a simple solution because the market, once again, the cost associated with building in areas like this or even in, around areas that have some risk associated with it are, are fairly substantial. And it's going to be very hard to achieve the affordable housing potentially necessary to make this work. Absolutely. Thomas, I, I think you actually covered a lot of my next question in the last answer, but I want to see if you could speak a little bit more to the relationship between climate risk, rent, and desirability of commercial properties, especially in that multifamily sector. Sure. You know, on the surface, obviously desirability and rent should fall as risk increases. But if you look, you know, historically, it's not 100% true, right? You look at coastal areas, Mm -hmm. they've had historically very high rents, uh, metros that are susceptible to extreme weather, you know, think storms, think heat stress, you know, look at the Southwest and the Phoenix area, it's growing leaps and bounds, right? Populations moving to those areas. So, so it's not, as though you know the simple surface analysis is really quite good enough here and and maybe part of its denial maybe part of its lack of trust in the data maybe it's a belief the government's going to step in you know i'll even raise my hand here kind of an interesting anecdote i was happy to move from coastal virginia where we had just a slight bit of exposure to to hurricane risk but i'm a pretty risk averse economist <laughs> yeah. who i i'm likely an outlier at this point and i think that's that's part of it is we're just kind of you know i'll say it again waking up to this i think from a demand perspective mm-hmm. you know us as tenants us as potential people that are going to live in these different cities and areas. And, you know, right now we're not really seeing it in the data. Hmm. Interesting. So how do available location amenities interact with the level of climate change facing properties in high risk areas like you were talking about? And then what are some of the amenities that can counteract the impact of climate risk on rent and location desirability? Yeah, another great question. I think amenities are going to be a large part of this conversation going forward. And I think that's where 
uh, some of the nuance in the relationship we were just discussing above comes into play, right? Mm -hmm. So once again, on the surface, it sounds like at least over time, maybe we'll see some stress on rents, vacancies, property values, and high-risk areas. But if you think about you know, amenity-rich areas. Think about, you know, mentioned already coastal areas with, you know, great view, areas that have major historic significance. Think of the French Quarter in New Orleans, right? That type of thing. It's a lot of the, the current population in those areas tend to be higher income households, right? And these folks, they may have a very high willingness and ability to pay for remediation efforts, mm -hmm. for resilience efforts. You know, in, in, econ in, in economics, we use the term inelastic demand, right? And that's, that's the idea that even if prices go up, I'm going to basically demand that, that good, or in this case, that parcel of land or that housing at the same level, kind of, especially if it's very scarce, right? That's what typically gives us inelastic demand if things are scarce. And so, you know, risks and cost issues maybe can be at least partially passed on to tenants. And some of those tenants might be willing, once again, if those amenities are good enough, if the view is good enough, if the historic significance is good enough, the culture is good enough, you know, and, and we may actually see rents rise in those areas and property values rise in those areas as they potentially could become, you know, more enclaves for higher income households. So it's it's really this interesting nuance that I think it's going to be at the the even the submarket level, certainly the metro level. And then you know, maybe the last thing to say about this is if we're in an amenity rich area and there's already wealthy households in those areas, the local government's not going to want to lose that tax base. And so I think that's where you're also going to see a lot of money put in from local government, maybe even some from the federal government to take on those resilience efforts, which will help maintain the rents, the occupancies, the property values in those particular areas. So, you know, there's a lot that can shake out over time here, but there's definitely nuance in the conversation. I think it has to do with the other characteristics of that location, right? Outside of just the climate risk characteristic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I remember driving down South with my kids and we were going through the New Orleans area and it's the first time they'd ever seen houses on stilts, right? They had never seen something like that. And so people want to live there because it's, they, there are good views. There is good seafood. There are all those amenities, but my kids were blown away. I think they were like 10 and, and six at the time, but they, they'd never seen houses on stilts. And I said, well, there's a trade-off here, you know, <laughs> you've got some risk. And so I, I would love to move to an area like that, Thomas. But again, I know that it's also uh, pretty high, not, not only high risk, but you've got some high prices. So I'm kind of curious, how can higher levels of climate risk in a given area, like we were talking about, affect cap rates and the ability to secure property financing? Because I'm going to need to know that for the future. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And this you know, goes from the space market to that capital market. Mm -hmm. And you know, if we believe there's stress in the space market, potentially, for certain areas, especially areas that are not maybe amenity rich, we could see increasing cap rates due to that widening of, of spread, right? That spread is, is supposed to show risk, right? It's supposed to be kind of a risk premium associated with the cap rate. And the thing is, though, 
we're seeing very little evidence of this currently. So it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier about very little evidence of major rent declines in at-risk areas. You know, it's the same thing here. We're just not seeing the, the risk premium being put into the capital market at this point. I think if anything, right, we'll say it again, you know, in the areas that tend to have high transaction volume that are highly liquid, these are often areas that have higher risk scores as we measure them, right? If you mm-hmm. think of water scarcity, if you think of heat stress, you know, we'll go back to the uh, to Phoenix, the Arizona area, the Southwest population still growing there, but we know that the Colorado River is having trouble and that's related to climate change and climate risks. And so, you know, there's this, this interesting disconnect right now. And, and maybe once again, it's the denial. Maybe it's the belief that the government's going to step in and try to take care of things. Maybe the belief that technology is going to take over. We could do use like desalinization out there in the Southwest and ship water in from the San Diego area. I, you know, I don't know, but I, I think that's on the mind of a lot of the folks that are still moving in those areas. Or maybe it's that, you know, maybe they're thinking by the time that they'd have to worry about it, they might be six feet under. So I I, Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of where we are in some of this. Hmm. A lot to consider, right? I mean, that's that's the bottom line. I, I know that Moody's analyzed six metro areas in Florida to see how climate risk can impact multifamily development and found some really surprising trends. Can you tell us what the analysis showed you guys? Sure. And and in all honesty, after this conversation we've been just having, it may not be surprising anymore. We were unable to find any statistically significant relationship between areas with high flood risk. We were specifically Hmm. focusing on high flood risk scores and any change to development patterns in those areas over the last few years, right? Our mindset was, hey, you know, awareness is growing. We now have data and science to support where the major flood risks are and where they'll be going forward. Right. And so we thought, well, maybe there is a trend break between development patterns over the last, say, 10, 15 years and maybe over the last five years. Maybe there was some kind of difference there. And we just weren't able to see it. Right. I mean, once again, the theory should say that lower demand, higher insurance costs should put pressure to reduce development in these areas, especially because we're building things that should last a long time. Right. So even if we, from a developer's perspective, and and all and the financers the finance teams going into that development if we expect this building to have a life of 20 30 40 50 or more years right and if you look at the science of it by 2050 there's all kinds of of negatives associated with climate risk in some of these areas and so you would expect that developers would be thinking about this and and those that are financing these projects would be thinking about this but once again we were not able to find a statistically significant relationship at least in the florida metros we were looking at and, you know, I think one of the, I get asked this question a lot of why do you think this is the case? Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the reasons here kind of goes into behavioral economics a little bit. When you look at the metros that we studied, you know, the major metros through the state of Florida, none of those have truly had devastating results from a major storm in many, many years, right? Definitely Herma, I'm sorry, 
Irma went by, Hurricane Michael went by, but they spared much of the most populous, the densest areas of Florida, the areas that we would have data on and that we were looking at in this study. So the behavioral economic aspect says, you know, the risk may certainly be in the background, but you know, it hasn't touched us in many, many years. It's kind of this out of sight, out of mind phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And I think the same could be said with the Southwest and the water scarcity and heat stress issue, issues that they're dealing with is that, yeah, they've had some issues, they've, they, but they really not haven't run out of water yet, right? It hasn't gotten to that point. They're dealing with it from an agricultural perspective. You know, they're dealing with it from a perspective of not watering their lawns as much and all those types of things, but they haven't gotten to that. You know, it's not like Houston or New Orleans dealing with the hurricanes that they did and the flooding and the long lasting issues that they did. You know, so I think if we extend this study and we're looking to do that now, and we actually put a, a variable in there that says, well, have you experienced this particular event or have you experienced this event multiple times in the recent past? I think you might start seeing some different results there. At least that's my expectation going forward. Gotcha. Well, that makes that makes perfect sense. Thomas, I want to thank you for your time today. Uh, this has been fantastic and, and just a ton of information to process. Yeah, really, uh, thank you for, for this platform. Once again, this is a topic we're going to be talking about quite a bit because as you can tell, you know, we are still at a point as, as industry researchers, mm-hmm. as academics, that there are more questions than answers. You know, it's a complex topic, but it's, it's a fascinating topic. And it's a topic that I think we as an industry have to share our information. We have to be forthright with it because we want to do what's best, right? We want to reduce uncertainty so we can, you know, build efficiently and build wisely going forward. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. And our last thank you goes to you listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the success zone podcast from wealthmanagement.com. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when the success zone comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Do yourself a favor and share this podcast with people in your office so you can all learn together. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at wealthmanagement.com, this is Eric Johnson reminding you that when you listen, learn, and grow, you'll find yourself in the success zone, which I think you'll agree is a great place to be. And we'll see you next time. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for information and educational purposes only. Wealthmanagement.com does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content or of any sites listed or linked to the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service with any questions you have regarding your investment planning.